Welcome to the Business of Eye Innovation, MedDevice Consulting's podcast covering all things ophthalmology, particularly focused on Europe. I'm your host, Chris Morrill, founder and president of MedDevice. Um, today on the podcast, we're going to be focusing in on clinical studies and the clinical work that the MedDevice clinical team does. Our clinical team is comprised of eight people who are trained to be primarily multidisciplinary, working across the different aspects of the clinical study. For MedDevice, we are not a traditional CRO. We work on everything from study design through to getting clinical study results analyzed and published. So joining me on the podcast today are three members of the clinical team, Claire Hosinger, Xavier Martin, and Anne-Sophie Gilding. And they're going to each introduce themselves quickly and give you a little bit about the background of where they come from. Claire? Hi, Chris. Um, well, for myself, I am trained as a, a material scientist. I have an engineering degree and a PhD degree. Worked for several years in the research area, Master of Innovation Management. Joined after uh, Institute of Image Guided Surgery for management of research projects, IP management, collaborative projects with physicians, researchers, and industries. And now I am a clinical trial manager here in MedDevice for almost one year. Thanks, Claire. And we should mention the ESU and the Institute is, is based here on the same campus where we are. So we're sort of neighboring uh, colleagues now. Xavier? Yes. Hi, Chris. So uh, Xavier Martin, I myself am also a chemist. I'm a medicinal chemist by training. I have also worked on uh, drug delivery as well during my postdoc. I also joined the same master in innovation management as Claire and Anne-Sophie. I worked as well with image-guided research as well, projects within IHU Strasbourg. I then moved on to an incubator, a healthcare uh, startup incubator. So I know a bit also about how we create companies, uh, fundraising, etc. And I joined the Medivise in September 2022 as a clinical project manager. And Anne-Sophie. Hi, I'm Anne-Sophie. I am I'm trained as a cognitive scientist slash biologist. So I've done a PhD in neuroscience. I worked in uh, preclinical research, basically finding new uh, medication for myelin disease for three years. Uh, then I have joined the Master of Innovation Management, as Claire and uh, Xavier mentioned. And this led me to join uh, for three years a company based in Paris, which was developing a software as medical device. And I was in charge of uh, all the regulatory aspects, so meaning also the transition to MDR and also clinical activities. And I've been working at MedDevice now for a little more than one year. Thank you, guys. So I have one question because each of you mentioned these, this master's program, which is something that the business school here in Strasbourg started, I think, about 15 years ago. And it's become something, at least amongst the medical device world in Strasbourg, it's a highly sought after group of students. And we, all, we have an intern here at the moment, Sarah, um, who we hope to have join the company. What led you to decide to do this master's program and what do you think it brings to your skill set that's different from a traditional PhD? 
I think from uh, my perspective, I felt that in, you know, academic research, things were moving really slow in terms of innovation. And that's why I wanted to uh, switch to the private sector. And this master degree is really focusing on entrepreneurship, innovation, and there's a lot of things uh, to learn about the whole ecosystems of startups. So I think this was a really good asset to transition to the private industry. Yeah, I think during my last research experience, I was working on nanomaterials that were designed to work as artificial readiness. But for instance, nobody ever considered the fact of the problem to implant these such small nanotubes into an eye. And then I realized this project was nice and I had a lot of fun working on that. But then at some point I knew this would be the end. I mean, we would not even maybe put it into a mice, but then it would not move forward. And this is this was, I think, what was a bit frustrating for me is to see that the project, when you stop working for them, then sometimes they're just put in a box and that's mm. forgotten. And this program, I think, is a good accelerator for PhD students, provide them confidence that, of course, PhD are experience in one skill, in one area of science, but steps to move to another wide brand of knowledge is very easy to make. It gives confidence to the PhD, not students anymore, and also to the industry world to show what are the skills that PhD can bring to a company. Yes, uh, from my side, it was also a... Um a will to move away from the bench, right? Mm. Well, innovation has many facets of many steps. And of course, uh, academic research is one of them and very good innovation stem from them, from there. But at some point I wanted also to basically expand my vision of the innovation process and not only focus on the very early stages. And as Claire said, sometimes can also be very frustrating with uh, projects not going all the way through. So my, my goal was also to basically open my view and have an impact on other stages of, of uh, innovation. For me, specifically healthcare, which is what has guided my career. But uh, yeah, that was the Okay. So in terms of, of what you're doing here at, at MedDevice, focusing in on clinical studies, which is one aspect of that journey that an innovation takes, how do you see your what you do today impacting the development of that product? And I think maybe I'll start with let's start with Anne-Sophie because Anne-Sophie, you've taken a, a, a medical device as a software into a CE mark. And then I think maybe jump to Claire because you've you've just been through a really tough round of submissions on brand new products. So Anne-Sophie? With the MDR, it is the step that you have to follow to bring your device to the market. And it's also, it helps, you know, improving the performance and the safety, but also a lot of other things such as, for example, usability for me as a software, as medical device, it was very important to have these clinical trials to see how the physician will use the device and in what environment and what can be also enhanced in the device. And then this is, I think, for the pre-markets uh, phase and also for post-marketing phase it also I mean it helps you to enhance your product uh, with the feedbacks of the of the clinical trials. And Claire? What I've realized is 
of course, MDR is implemented for many years now in Europe, but I realized that all the regulatory authorities and the ethics committee are still struggling to know how to implement mm. it. And perhaps they don't know exactly how to do it. And it resulted, uh, I think, for the first submissions we did at MedDevice with some rejections of some files. Mm. And now, uh, because we work also as a team, uh, we share our experience, that is very important. We understand that each country is a bit different, even though it's the same. And I see that if I was uh, a client sponsor from outside of Europe, it seems very scary, all these administrative documents. And how can you navigate through all those sometimes 40, 60 documents that are required? It's a lot. Most of them are very administrative paperwork. Mm -hmm. Quite easy to feel, but you know how you don't. You have to know that they exist, that they are required, that they are mandatory, and that you have to do it. It takes time. And Xavier, because in your previous job you worked in an incubator and technology transfer, how does working on a clinical study specifically differ from that previous role of helping companies transition an idea out to a standalone company? I would say that once you enter the realm of, if I may call it that way, of clinical studies, this is the moment of truth. Hmm. Before, uh, of course, everything's serious business, but you have the right to maybe a mistake or to reinvent or to retry again. Once you enter a clinical trial, uh, if I may use a French expression, meaning it's it's really the time of truth. Isn't hmm. it? Now is the time to, um, to go. So I think it's very important to have uh, someone that can help you navigate, as Claire said, uh, all of the different stages, because this is a very time-sensitive and cost-sensitive process, mm -hmm. right? A small detail can set you back three months, and uh, they can set you back another three months and another few thousand euros, <laughs> for example. So it's it's uh, it's critical to have this well-managed from the beginning, uh, so that you can ensure a very, let's say, as smooth as possible process throughout the, the clinical trial. And if you think about it, in, in the case of two of our clients, they elected to go to a, we'll say, a Latin American country to try and what they thought was going to speed the process to get them where they needed to be in terms of position for regulatory approval elsewhere. And in the case of one, well, both of them have been stalled in this country where we've been able to move the, the submissions forward more quickly even though we know on the, the Claire's project in particular, we're submitting on a higher generation of the product than what's going to be in clinical study in Mexico. The timing issues, but also the assumption by companies that three or four or five years ago, you could go to Latin America, get approval very quickly, get a clinical study done, and you didn't have to think about Europe. And what I think our experience has been over the past you know, six, 12 months is it may not necessarily be the right way to try to circumvent Europe. And you may actually move more quickly in some of the European countries. There's some interesting nuances that, well, you know, to Claire's point, it seems really scary and daunting. The, you know, the life under MDR, what we've learned is that it is a lot of more, it's a paperwork exercise than anything else. Yes. Okay. Um, so, one thing that I've noticed that to Claire's point about 
you know, learning from our, our first submissions under MDR land last year, which were quite frankly, a bit of a bloodbath at times. What has the team done to learn from that and ensure that, you know, we, we knock down the level of, of feedback that comes back from a competent authority or ethics committee and also turnaround times? I sort of refer to you as the AI because you seem to absorb information, think about it, aggregate it, document it, and then move on to the next project and apply it. So is it that is it that methodical how you're working? I think so. Yeah, I think in a sense we have succeeded to by experience to retrieve all the information and to have database that allows us to be more and more effective because we already have all the information. And I think we have also tried to notice what is important in some case and try to highlight this in order to focus more on certain points regarding uh, some ethical committee, some competent authority. I think that there is some specific variation around countries or even within regions. And I think this is really important to be spotted and that we can share this with our team internally and then with working in this way with our clients. What are some examples of that as some regional variations or country variations? So for example, something that we went through for the first submissions, uh, in this case in Spain, so we received feedback from competitive authorities and they like a specific text, a specific wording for their ICFs, for example. And so this is something that we've integrated into newer uh, submissions that we've done so that we uh, basically go faster and quicker through a competent authority uh, approval. Yeah. Other examples, Claire, maybe Germany, you've been spending a lot of time in Germany. A lot of time in Germany. Yeah. I, I think uh, the example of, of Xavier works as well. There are some wordings, specific wordings that needs to be there and once You've been told and you can check if your next file is compliant. That's um, working from what you have experienced before. Mm. This is very important and we communicate a lot in the, in the team to, to share those information. I ask a lot of questions to Sophie, to our team, because she has a lot of knowledge, especially for not only Germany, but I, I worked a lot for Germany and she has also so we we divide the work in between the two of us yeah I think this is how we can time maybe we also start creating relationship with the team on sites they start to know who we are mm -hmm. and I hope it helps getting what we need from them in terms of documentation in terms of documentation for of course and I would say also, I would add to that, that we know quite well our, our way around the different platforms that every country is using, right? So we know that Germany has their specific one. Uh, of course, the UK has the, their own, and we know our way around and how to solve potential issues that may come mm -hmm. when using those platforms as well. And in the meantime, we try to document all of this information we gather in one document to help with our future works. Sarah is working a lot on that right now. Documenting that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's something that we are rather obsessive at at MedDevices, documentation and making sure that we write it down so that the next person who comes along doesn't feel like they're starting from scratch. You, you've had to kind of pioneer Italy and, and Switzerland 
last year. What are the things that the Italians and the Swiss are on the lookout for in terms of documentation, wording? I would say that in Italy, the ethical committee are regional, meaning that there will be slight differences between the documentation required from different ethical committee. I would say that in general, documentation are the same, but they might be, from my experience, they were really focusing on all the contracting aspects. And whether in Switzerland, it is a platform that you submit documentation through, and it's, I think, a bit more rigid, where, for example, for the informed consent, they have like this template and you have to change only the words that are in red. Yeah, I think every country has its own things that really matters to them. In general, I think they are really working on being homogeneous with the MDR and the documentation that needs to be provided. So there was not like a huge difference, but it's mainly little details I think they're focusing on. And if a sponsor comes back and tries to tell us that they must not really need that document or they don't really think that they need to provide that document, how wrong are they? They're probably very wrong. Mm -hmm. Especially with some country, I think like Switzerland and Germany, where there is a list of documents and you follow the list of documents, you don't try to bypass. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, a submission won't even be considered if it's not complete. So. If that document is really needed, that doc- the Swiss need that document, the German need the document, so you just provide the document and you accelerate things. Right? Yeah. So so at least the good argument to have the document is to say then, okay, but you risk to lose 6,000 euros maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's, um, you know, so I think, it, you know, for any future sponsors listening to this podcast, don't argue with us. <laughs> we, we need a document because... We're, we have 100% certainty that you do need the documents that are asked for. Yeah, and sometimes even on the platform, you're not allowed to move forward until you know you upload what they required. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you can upload something that is blank, but it's certainly not going to pass. <laughs> they will remind. And the other <laughs> the reminder. For, for every discussion with the, with the ethics committee or with the authority, this is a setback in timing, right? I mean, yes. And again, they give you two weeks or three weeks or whichever amount of time to respond. And then they also have a certain amount of time to check everything, your responses. So every back and forth that you do with the authorities is more time that is taken off the actual trial or to, to begin the trial. Yeah, and, and cost and delays. And I, I've often said that with Farm in particular, if they the third time they have to write you about something, if they switch to English, you know you're in trouble. Um, because they clearly think you don't understand what they're asking for. So it is, you know, there's some subtleties involved, but I think the point here is that you all have spent a lot of time now studying these documents, understanding what's required. And so we're not just looking to, to make busy work. It's about making sure that we want, as the MedDevice team, is to do the absolute best for our clinical sponsors and get them over the finish line. Yeah, and I think the process that is straightforward for us is also straightforward for the sponsor. Mm-hmm. So we hope straightforward for the authorities, and that probably helps everyone, every stakeholder in this situation to uh, move as fast as, uh, as possible. Yeah, yeah. And we're, you know, we're not afraid to pick up the phone. Um, you know, we had a, the, a recent retrospective study in the UK on Zofi where we were getting nowhere fast, <laughs> and so I ended up calling 
finding the, all the phone numbers for everybody at the Scottish National Research Trust office. And I went and called every single person on the phone list and left a voicemail. And five minutes later, I got a call from the director because there was a crazy American on the loose. But the point was we needed to get things moving. We were stuck and we had been stuck for weeks. And so we don't, you know, we push where we can push. And if that means the investigators, as well as the sponsors. And I think we were talking before we started recording about having to be pushy. And all of you know what it's like to push the investigators, the surgeons along. Um, and it's not always the simplest, easiest thing to do. Yeah, I think it's important, as you mentioned, not to be afraid to you know pick up the phone and have the answers. So for example, you were talking about so the UK. I think every ethical committee I've called were very, very responsive and happy to help. And sometimes when you don't really know the answer, they also don't really know how <laughs> because you know with also the transition to MDR there is still things that are going on but they will always tell you what is the best way to proceed in case of the investigator I think it's the same the fact to have a good relationship it's not only you know emails and writing that can be sometimes a little bit cold but it's also good to create really good contact with them and to be able to have quick chats when there is a blocking point so the it isn't like unread email for two weeks. I mean, we need to move forward. So Yeah. I mentioned retrospective studies a, a bit ago. One of the really unfortunate aspects of MDR is it does not define what a clinical study is. And so we never know, um, honestly, with retrospective studies, it varies from ethics committee to ethics committee, how it's treated. And, you know, Aunt Sophie, you just went through one in the UK where we were told it was going to be uh, 10 days in a rubber stamp, and it's turned out to be anything but. Whereas in Germany, you know, Claire, we know that it, it just depends yeah. on the ethics committee and whether yeah. they decide it's yeah. important or not. Yeah. And that's, a, that's another thing that you cannot assume that you don't need ethics committee approval until mm -hmm. you check for certain. Yeah, I think it is really important being in doubt to refer to, to the ethical committee. If they need a submission, they will tell you, but it is very likely, for example, for Germany, the assumption was that for retrospective study, we will not need it. But the thing is that they have really local rules and that <laughs> each Uh, well, then each site is associated to a, an ethical committee and it can differ only by, you know, a few kilometers, but then it would be totally different. So from one, you will need an approval for the other, you will not need it. So again, the necessity to pick up the phone and to have the information, it's not black or white. No, and for clinicians who want to publish data, it's absolutely critical that you have something in place to document that you've gotten that approval to use that data, that you've done a proper approved informed consent and gone to the days of ad hoc data collection and reporting, it will only lead you down, you know, some legal routes that you don't want to go down. So, yeah. Okay. So anything else to add before we wind up any words of wisdom that you would share to, uh, a clinical sponsor or a clinician about doing clinical studies under MDR? 
And we'll start with Anne-Sophie. From the point of view of a sponsor, I think it's really important to identify documentation. The checklist is the rule. <laughs> and from the point of investigator, I think what is really important is also to, you know, not go through a clinical trial without a team that is can support the, the trial because this is a lot of documentation and this is a, actually a lot of work. So having a good team that's surrounding you is really the best way to go. That was a very good tip, Anne-Sophie. From my side, I would like to say that this is a process with several different stakeholders, like sponsor, CRO, of course, the clinician, the authorities. And I think having a open communication and dynamic communication between all of them, it's a very important step to ensure a timely approval and a timely and a good um, happening of the, of the trial itself. And Claire? I'll be simple. Um, follow our guidance and respect the rules. That's <laughs> love it. <laughs> all right. Okay, Claire, Xavier, and Anne-Sophie, thank you for joining Business of Eye Innovation. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you very much.